0: I am Anders Bolling. This is Mind the Shift, a podcast about a shifting world and an integrating world. Integration can be about communication, information, cooperation, travel and tourism. But obviously it can also be about the flows of people who decide to move to a new place more permanently for various reasons. My guest today is Hein de Haas. He's a professor of sociology at the University of Amsterdam. He holds an extraordinary professorship in migration and development at Maastricht University. He's a founding member and director of the International Migration Institute at the University of Oxford in England. His research focuses on the linkages between migration and broader processes of social transformation and development in origin and destination countries. He's also a co-author of the book, The Age of Migration, which is now on its sixth edition. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I hope my CV, my bio here was correct. Is there anything you want to add or maybe remove?
1: That's correct. The only thing I could add as a bit of a news thing is that the uh, IMI, the International Migration Institute, which I used uh, to lead at the University of uh, Oxford has now been moved also to the University of Amsterdam. So we oh, had yeah. a migration of <laughs> the Migration Institute from Oxford to Amsterdam. And, uh, but it's still the same can still visit the website with all the resources that we have been accumulating over the last 15 years.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Okay. And it's, it is Hein, isn't it? Not Hein, Heim. Heim. Hein okay because it's right. it's, it's a, you're dutch no so uh, i right. i've i've learned that there is a difference between dutch and german pronunciation i can imagine maybe some it's people... More like
1: it's more like hein yeah the way yeah? i say okay.
0: it. okay okay very well so let's just dive right into it you are uh, one of the most interesting migration experts uh, that i've come across i think and uh, i've read quite a bit of what you've you have uh, done uh, and being in europe of course a few years ago there was a pivotal moment for for european politics and for european migration policy not the least and things happen so fast i mean we can it hardly feels like a different world now because we have the pandemic and we have had so many other crises (laughs) but it's only four years ago four or five years ago that we had this we had this big big wave of Refugees mainly, but also other migrants coming from mainly Middle East, Afghanistan, parts of Africa towards Europe. And we had these, well, everybody knows about this, there was panic in some camps and uh, there were a lot of new decisions uh, made. So straight to the point, how do you think that, how did you, Europe respond to this wave in your eyes? Well, I think migration has always
1: been a topic that has been very attractive for politicians to sort of, I would almost say, create a hype around. Let me be clear, uh, what happened five years ago was, of course, a real crisis in terms of uh, a bloody war going on in Syria and some other countries, uh, we saw some intensified levels of conflict, which, of course, led to an increase in refugee migration, particularly out of Syria part of which is spilled over into uh, refugee migration to Europe but it has been a common trend to often proclaim that this is the ultimate migration crisis and we have seen many of these moments I mean if you've been following migration for a longer time you 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 will remember many occasions where European politicians have created a lot of uh, fear and panic around other migration moves for instance if we go a few years further back think about the arab spring and what happened in tunisia and libya and i remember then also european italian politicians warning against a biblical uh, sort of out exodus out of africa if we go back a further a bit further back in time i think around 2006 2007 there was this increase of migration to the Canary Islands of the West African coast. So we see it at repeated occasions that um, we see this sort of almost proclamation of this is a game changer; everything is going to change. Now, that is just to put it in perspective. Now, and what you often see as a reaction is that oh, this is a new migration reality, and our policies will be very different. Now, although of course, what happened yeah about five years ago was uh, a very big inflow of uh, refugees into uh, Europe obviously the numbers of refugees in neighboring countries here were much bigger like in Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan but it was obviously a huge uh, movement that we saw but what we also have learned for instance if you go back to the wars in former Yugoslavia is that such influxes, because then we had a similar influx of refugees into Western Europe, is that yes. these are almost always temporary influxes indeed. And it is, you don't need to be a migration researcher to understand what is the cause. It's often conflict that genera- generates those peaks. Um, and then, of course, what you then see happening, and we saw that in Europe, is it almost exposes the lack of uh, intra-European solidarity in dealing with these issues. And I think here you can draw a parallel to other crises. If you go to economic crisis or now with the COVID-19 crisis, the sort of lack of real willingness uh, of states to really support each other often for uh, domestic political reasons to cater to particular populist voices that say we need to think of our own populations of our own economy we shouldn't be helping out countries that mess things up and that is often you know the overall framing and that's where we often see it going wrong Mm -hmm. of course if you talk about here over one million people because we talk about that if we go back to 2006 asylum seekers coming into europe of course you deal with an unprecedented inflow of asylum seekers that of course puts extra pressure on those countries where those refugees arrive, particularly Greece in this case. And to a certain extent, because there was some um, uh, also increase of uh, asylum and other migration flows across the Mediterranean to countries like Italy, for instance, of course, that puts a particularly heavy burden on those countries and particularly the islands, I would say, where those uh, refugees arrive. But I think if you look at the broader European picture, I mean, until Brexit, um, European Union had over 550 million inhabitants. Of course, you could deal with such an issue on the condition that you do it jointly and don't put Mm. a burden on one country. Mm. What has de facto happened is that a few countries in a way took that responsibility. And particularly we think about Germany and I think Angela Merkel's sort of position that we, we can make it, we we, yeah, we, we can deal with we it. He has schaffen das. He schaffen das. But of course, based on assumption, this would be a pan-European response. We can, we can manage these things. But what has de facto happened is that a few countries, I mean, it's not only Germany, a few other Western European countries have been relatively open to receiving Syrian refugees. So they were basically, um, um, other countries had a free ride on the openness of those countries which subsequently obviously because um, uh, undermined uh, the support for refugee reception in those countries had shown some openness and particularly if you look at Eastern Europe but also many other European countries there was a lack of real willingness to uh, develop a joint effort and the European Commission has tried to do so but the member states have systematically blocked it. Now another thing that also went on and that, I think, uh, in spite of uh, nice words and lip service that was paid to we need a joint response, there was never a joint response. So uh, the idea of burden sharing or responsibility sharing has never been put into practice. Um, Then also there was a certain tendency to um, allow almost, I would say, countries like Hungary and other countries in the Balkan to sort of stop, block these migrations. because in a way it served Northern European countries well. I mean, on the one hand, Northwestern European countries have a habit to criticize for good reasons, uh, authoritarian governments uh, like the one of Hungary, but on the other hand, I think it served them pretty well that uh, Orbán in this case, uh, basically closed the border and closed this sort of so-called Balkan route. It hasn't solved, of course, any problems as we see right now in Greece. Um, and the suffering of migrants in those camps is is, uh, incredible and is also in in violation with all sorts of promises that have been made at the time, but it shows that I think a longer term trend in Europe of the politicization of these refugee and immigrant issues, uh, a declining willingness of politicians uh, to take that responsibility. So I, I rather think this is a political crisis than a migration crisis per se and in my view in the longer term this is not something new this has been ongoing for a very long time
0: yeah are you saying that the countries in the north that are uh, perceived as the, the good countries, so to speak the morally good countries uh nordics uh germany holland maybe uh, and others uh silently were satisfied that orban and others uh put up fences to stop the the migrants and that yeah, I, is the reason why, why, they, why they're not harsher in their criticism towards what's, what, what they're doing and how, how in the way they're stopping this, this uh, common effort to, to solve the problem.
1: Well, I don't think there's any sort of conspiracy, but I think it served them well. I mean, the circumstances served them well that, that this happened. And of course, yeah. there is no direct link you can make. But of course, it will mute some potential criticism. Uh, that could have been made uh, and of course it goes back to another issue of the traditional moral grandstanding of northwestern european countries also in the financial crisis it hits an yeah. open and i think for good mm. reasons um, and certainly in relation to greece of course there's a lot of things going on here that in a way greece is still picking up the real pieces of this crisis and in that yeah. sense um, as long as we don't hear from it we're you know that Worried. I mean, the hypocrisy around this issue is enormous, because an mm. equally bloody war is going on in a country like Yemen. But we don't see Yemenite, Yemenites showing up at European borders, so nobody talks about these issues. And I would say the real refugee crisis is, of course, happening still in the Middle East, in and around Syria, and indeed a country like Yemen. It only hits the news lines here, a significant numbers of asylum seekers uh, reach uh, the borders of uh, Western European countries. And I think more in general, there is, of course, this ongoing phenomenon of, uh, for countries like Italy and, and, and Spain that doesn't interest us too much in Northwestern Europe, um, unless indeed um, significant numbers of uh, asylum seekers and other migrants uh, reach uh, Northwestern European destinations. So yeah, there is a certain level of convenience in allowing these things to happen, in allowing human rights abuses to happen. We also saw it clearly in the so-called Turkey deal, that we are not too bothered about what happens to refugees in in a country like Turkey. And on the other hand, I do think that we have to acknowledge that indeed countries like Turkey have taken a huge responsibility, if you look at sheer numbers, millions and millions of Syrians being hosted in those countries. And that indeed gives them some leverage in those uh, negotiations.
0: Talking about the Turkey deal, the deal between the European Union and Turkey, which is in my view, maybe a little bit shady in some parts. Uh, Anyway, you mentioned that these large influxes uh, of refugees that that occur sometimes are normally very temporary phenomena. Uh, So we shouldn't be afraid that they will continue going on just for years and years and years. So I I would say that in the the narrative of politicians in the European Union and Turkey uh, and everyone involved, uh, the reason why the influx faded and there is hardly any, I mean, the, the number of refugees coming, reaching European Union countries today is probably lower than it was before the big so-called wave in 2015. And in their narrative, that's because of their decisions, of course, and the deal between the EU and Turkey. But you say that had this not, occur, hadn't they taken these measures, it would probably, probably have faded away anyway. Yeah, that's to some what I- extent.
1: Well, actually, it's interesting if you look at the timing of the the so-called Turkey deal, actually, numbers of Syrian, uh, arrivals of Syrian asylum seekers already had started to decline even before that deal happened. Okay. So that already puts a lot of, because I think politicians have very successfully sold this story to journalists in the public that have massively bought into this idea. It's because of the Turkey deal that less people have been coming. Actually, numbers already started to go down after that summer. Um, over the over the months. For a, I mean, there's a lot of um, um, research and, and speculation about why that happened. It's probably a combination of factor that most Syrian uh, refugees that wanted to go to Europe probably had already made the move and brought their families over. Indeed, the closure of the so-called Balkan route may have played a role as well. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of factors, but what we indeed typically see with crisis situations is, is is very sharp peaks and then uh, leveling off of those flows. What we also know from research uh, done by some colleagues at the IMI, International Migration Institute in Turkey, is that actually quite some Syrian refugees in Turkey would like to stay in Turkey because they have their kids in school there, they have found work, they started businesses. Often they want to stay closer to Syria, preferably, because it's not a method everybody wants to go to Europe because for many Syrians, Uh, it's preferable to stay in Turkey or in Jordan or in Lebanon because of Mm. more closer cultural similarities, uh, geographical Mm. proximity, and so on and so forth. So that's not a myth, I would say, is that everybody wants to come to Western Europe. That's a select group of people. That's a sub-selection of that total outflow. So we typically see these refugee movements being quite temporary. But I think there's another more important issue. There's often an underlying assumption that we can expect more and more refugee flows. It's often cast as waves to happen in the future because of intensified conflict and crisis in the world. Now, the interesting thing is if you look at the long-term trends, you actually see that the level of conflict and violence in the world has rather gone down than gone up. We see, of course, a flare-up of conflicts. This is not a sort of linear decrease. It's almost like On the longer term, there has been a decrease uh, since the 1950s of violent conflict in the world. But of course, you see flare up. So you see, I would say, almost fluctuations around that trend. So the assumption that we will only see more refugees coming in the future is based on that assumption of increasing conflict, whereas actually long-term trends don't really seem to show that. Secondly, we know that the vast majority of refugees, wherever they occur in the world, tend to stay in the region for a whole combination of reasons because like i just said most people would like to stay close to home but also moving over long distances costs a lot of money uh, requires a lot of connections which is generally only an option for people who are slightly better off who can either pay the means to migrate in regular ways yeah like to apply for a visa or a work permit and pay for a ticket or through more informal Means, for instance, paying a smuggler is pretty expensive. So that's already <laughs> not an option for the poorest of the poor. So, the, what we generally see in conflict and other crises, like for instance, uh, climate related sort of um, incidents, uh, weather events, earthquakes, hurricanes, is that the poor flooding that the poorest of the poorest generally are trapped where they are. People who are would slightly better off can move out, but only over short distances, either within countries or just across the border to the next country. But actually, the proportion of people who both wants and is able to move over such long distances is fairly limited.
0: Yeah, you're touching but, on so many issues there that I would like to dive deeper into. Uh, yeah. And uh, but maybe we can start at the the the, the end of. Um, or continue at the end of um, numbers, the number, the sheer numbers, I think the United Nations itself can sometimes exacerbate this idea that you were mentioning here, that uh, there is a notion that the number of refugees is going to increase more and more and more, creating some kind of panic around it sometimes, because the United Nations je- regularly every year or twice a year, I can't remember exactly how often, uh, comes up with these numbers of the uh, these figures the number of refugees, and it seems to be increasing all the time. And yeah. there's a bit of confusion as to what they're actually talking about. They are talking about, they have a term, forcibly displaced people. And the latest figure I saw was 79.5 million. And out of those, the number of refugees were, was uh, 26 million. And then, of course, you have the, the broader concept of migrants, which is which is a hugely larger Figure. So can you please bring some, some order to these numbers and, and put them in some perspective?
1: Yeah, I think, thanks for that question. I think it's very important to talk about, to put indeed uh, numbers in perspective. Let me give a very few really basic numbers. I mean, if we look at relative numbers, you know, you see a lot of absolute numbers uh, being uh, bounced around. Um, and then, yeah, it seems to be all very unprecedented if we look at total numbers of migrants in the world, but actually in relative numbers, in relative, relatively speaking numbers haven't increased as fast as many people think. Yes, it is true that over 250 million people right now in the world are international migrants. And here an international migrant is a person that is currently living in another country than his or her country of birth. And that number has been increasing uh, over the last decades. But also the world population has been increasing. So if you would calculate all international migrants in the world as a percentage of world population, it's 3%. And it was 3% also in 1960 and probably a percentage was actually higher a century ago when, for instance, a lot of Europeans went to North America. But the basic message is we see a remarkable stability of the intensity of international migration around the world.
0: So it's about three percent of the population of the world tends to move around all the time is that is that correctly? Well
1: I mean only three percent of, of the world population any given time since the second world war is an international migrant so that means a person that has is still living in another country than his real country. of birth. Oh actually, yeah it doesn't
0: mean that they are on the move but it means that they live somewhere other than they were born and raised.
1: Exactly but what it shows is that actually we see much more stability um, and, and uh, It's perhaps interesting to to also get into a a little bit more depth in terms of what has been changing, but just to give basic numbers. So we see 3% of the world population is an international migrant. The number of people moving within countries is way and way larger. Exact numbers are not available, but one estimate says perhaps 12% of the world population has moved within his or her own country so, for instance, the number of internal migrants in China alone is probably as high as the number of international migrants in the world. So mm-hmm. most most really? movement happens within countries, typically from rural areas to urban areas as countries you know, go through a process of industrialization and people tend then to move to big cities. Some people uh, may move across borders, but that number is actually relatively low. Now, for refugees, I think it is very important to put this into perspective. Refugees are roughly one tenth or less of all international migrants. It's also that number that fluctuates a little bit, but roughly between five and ten percent of all international migrants qualify as refugees. So refugee movements get amplified a lot in the international media and political discourses, but actually it's a relatively small group of uh, international movers of which the majority over 80% remains in their own region. So the number, relative number of refugees, you see these one-off peaks, like in around 2006 seems huge, but overall migration every year to the European Union is somewhere around two and a half million per year. And I'm talking about regular immigration. This is just regular legal immigration. Now okay. in that particular year, you saw a number of, of refugees added to that number. But in the larger scheme of things, it's not something that I would say would uh, break the bank or is something completely um, um, unprecedented. So we see those ups and downs and most fluctuations in migration are actually explained by the economy. So if the economy does well in destination countries, if the European economies are growing fast, they tend to attract more migrants. In times of recession, it tends to go down. So we see those fluctuations with economic booms and busts but also indeed with some conflict breaking out, but the overall trend has been one of remarkable stability. A last fact, which I think is very important, and also to correct some, I would say, imagery we get from images we see in the media and political narratives is irregular, undocumented, or sometimes people call this illegal migration, also, that we need to put in perspective. To give you an example, I mean, most media imagery around the issue of irregular migration, certainly in Europe, has been framed around the so-called boat migration from Africa to Europe. It's the European equivalent, I would say, from you know migration across the US-Mexican border. Um, And it creates this image that by and large migration from Sub-Saharan Africa is one of people getting on those boats and trying to get into Europe without having permission to do so. I did did a study trying to compare uh, the best estimates we have about the magnitude of these types of boat migration, informal uh, undocumented migration, compared this to official immigration statistics, suggested that the vast majority of African migrants moving to Europe comes to europe legally by plane by boat with visa and passport in hand Hmm. roughly nine out of ten africans moving every year to europe comes completely within the law
0: so 90 percent. wow i
1: mean nine nine out of ten roughly it can be a bit lower a bit higher depends on the year of course again we have particular years when things happen when labor demand is very high there is not enough Uh, uh, official channels, or indeed if a conflict breaks out, but by and large, so just to recap those numbers, we talk about a remarkable stable level of international migration of around 3% uh, over the last decades, over the last half a century. Of all migrants, the vast majority are either labour or family migrants that move uh, completely, regularly, Refugees are between five and 10% of all migrants uh, in the world. Again, that fluctuates, uh, but it's not a stable sort of increase. And only a small minority of all international migrants migrates um, as undocumented migrants. So that is just to put these things a little bit in perspective. And you are right, there is a big tendency amongst UN agencies, uh, for instance, the UN um, uh, High Commissioner for refugees and the United Nations Population Division, to every year come out with press releases. The same goes for International Organization of Migration, to say, we have an unprecedented number of refugees and migrants. We hit another unprecedented level. But it's generally talking about short-term trends and absolute levels. It does not put those figures into perspective. And that can unfortunately, lead to a sort of misleading impression that indeed we face a sort of global migration crisis. And that is really not what the facts show. Is
0: it because they want more funds or what's the reason why they do this?
1: I think there is every organization wants to prove its relevance. And those figures work in the media because it adds to this crisis narrative. It's often on the edge of being sensationalist. And I think I would advise, for instance, the United Nations refugee organization to be very careful with this, because it could, uh, although the the UNHCR is there to help refugees and displaced populations around the world, that's their mandate, they may unwittingly feed into this idea that refugee migration are getting out of hand to such an extent that we no longer can manage it. And that Mm. could actually undermine the whole case for refugee protection. So what they indeed have been doing recently is including so-called internally displaced persons. These are people that are displaced by conflict or or other uh, political causes, but haven't moved outside of the country. Now, of course, the majority of displaced people have always moved within countries and that have not become international refugees, but you cannot suddenly add these numbers to total refugee statistics, because what you get is a sort of artificial hike in refugee numbers, that is only the result of including a category that was excluded from previous statistics
0: but then they they use this term forcibly displaced people so those that you were talking about now they are including in that are they uh, mm-hmm. the internal internally displaced people yeah
1: so if you look at total the re- statistics that have been published uh, by the UNHCR, the uh, so-called IDPs, the Internally Displaced People, so these are uh, indeed people who've been displaced by conflict and other political causes that have not moved across borders, were not included in previous uh, refugee statistics, they were kept uh, separately, and I think there's good reason to do that. You cannot suddenly Uh, conflate to categories because it creates an impression that numbers are actually much higher than they are and it creates sort of the oh suddenly you see a huge jump in numbers that actually is is the result of adding those uh, people that have been displaced within countries to total international Mm -hmm. refugee statistics and I think that is something that we need to avoid we need to be very careful and I understand the short-term interests of uh, people and agencies wanting to show the severity of these issues. Of course, it is an issue of millions of people are being displaced, but it's not a new phenomenon. of course, that is a reason for political concern. But I think the downside of that type of uh, statistical manipulation is that uh, we may unwittingly create this impression of an unmanageable refugee crisis, as Getting out of hand, and there have been a lot of political voices recently that said, while current refugee numbers are that high, that we can no longer be as generous as we used to be in the past. And I think that is the danger that you create mm. a crisis narrative that can actually undermine the case for refugee protection.
0: And then, of course, the population of the world increases all the time, so the percentage remains more or less the same. They could they could just as well use the percentage number, but they they don't, do they?
1: No, no, I I understand that in a way they use absolute numbers. And well, absolute of course, this, oh, right. it's
0: people people of flesh and blood are not yeah. the numbers are people. You cannot
1: reduce everything to percentage. but I think we also have a certain responsibility, uh, yeah. and I also think these agencies have a certain responsibility. On the one hand, highlight that we deal with a continuous issue of displacement happening in several countries around the world that do, do require our attention, but I think at the same time it is important to to keep to put these numbers into perspective. And I think there they could do a much better job in terms of public education. Uh, And and I think there, there is a certain tendency towards sensationalism that I think is very unfortunate.
0: Yeah. You were, mentioning the uh, the boat mig- migrants on the Mediterranean, I want to come back a little bit to that. This question has to do with that. Uh, migration generally has of course always uh, occurred and existed. It's a natural thing in humankind. Uh, but then there is this uh, counterintuitive thing that migration from very, very poor countries actually increases when these countries get a little bit richer. And I I think many people don't understand what kind of mechanism this is. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, uh, I mean, later on, I hope we can talk about the causes of migration from the sort of destination countryside. And then we need to talk about issues like labor demand, which is really important. But if indeed we now look at origin countries, so why do people migrate? Now, intuition is a very poor guide to understand these issues, because mm. the narrative, here, what we hear is often, and it seems to make a lot of sense, you hear, uh, we have all these international inequalities, people are poor, and often the label desperate is used, desperate departures, people want to go away, we see that a lot in reports. It's basically human misery, or underdevelopment, or lack of development, that is, or violence, all sorts of bad things happening in, in in origin countries that pushes people out and it feeds into the imagery of of boats we see of uh, and the word desperate is used a lot in this in this context of desperate african migrants or refugees that try to leave the continent and and, and the problem is is that we know from research first of all that most migrants uh, from Africa for instance are not from the poorest countries of Africa and if we look at the research that has been done amongst migrants we see that these are typically not amongst the poorest Mm. and least educated members of their society. Uh, I think I already mentioned it before uh, it costs quite a lot of money uh, to migrate uh, but it also requires I think a certain mindset and what you typically see and it's happened also in, in Europe in a not too distant past, if particularly in rural areas people get exposure to new ideas, to education and media, and of course rural areas get connected to the development of, of, of roads and rail and other sort of infrastructure, uh, you often see that younger generations no longer want to stay in the village. Now, I often uh, ask my students who uh, amongst you have been born in a small rural place, a village or a town, that includes myself, by the way. Then, um, and then I asked them, what do you think when you were like 17, 18 years old, they all wanted to move to the city, at least the large majority of these people. And they say, well, this is not just typical African story. This is a story of human mankind that with uh, young people, particularly those who receive some level of education, no longer want to be a farmer. It's often a very simple story. I've done for years fieldwork in rural areas in in Morocco, which is a very important emigration country, young generations that went to secondary school generally no longer want to live in the countryside anymore. So it's not just a question of resources, in order to migrate you need money, it is also to aspire to particular lifestyles that are no longer rural and agrarian. So what we see typically in that process, if countries I would say get on that development track, which means Increases in income, better education, better access to information, better infrastructure, growth of cities and opportunities in cities. People generally then want to move out. So, the way I often frame it is development, economic, social, human development leads to increasing aspirations and capabilities of people to move out. And that explains the paradox if you look around the world, what are the big Countries of emigration. Well, looking to the Americas, Mexico, looking at Europe, countries around Europe almost like Turkey, Morocco, Tunisia. These are a few of big emigration countries. Ukraine these days is a very important origin country too for Europe. Uh, if we look in Asia, a country like the Philippines is a very important out migration mm-hmm. country. All these countries are typically middle income countries. They are not the poorest countries in the world. And actually, if you look at migration from Europe, from Africa to Europe, the poorest countries in Africa have very low immigration rates to Europe.
0: Yeah, those coming on boats over the Mediterranean, they're not from Niger, from Chad, from C.A.R. They're from Nigeria, from Senegal, from Ghana, from, like you say, middle income.
1: And if you would interview those migrants, they're often from urban areas, they often have a quite good level of education. And as I already said, the vast majority of these people migrate legally so my best estimate was nine out of ten africans moving out of africa actually migrates completely legally but for those who cannot uh, acquire a visa or other legal ways of, of moving or indeed are refugees uh, the other option is indeed to uh, to pay a smuggler to, to get across the border so and i think there are a number of countries that seem to have increasing rates of out migration ethiopia is a very good example as well. Ethiopia is on a track uh, of of increasing incomes, increasing education, better infrastructure, sort of opening up process and more and more Ethiopians now find a way out of Mm -hmm. Ethiopia, primarily to Gulf countries, for instance, not necessarily to Europe. Uh, So that is indeed development tends to lead to more migration initially. And that is what migration researchers call the migration transition. So in a bit of a... And, and, and this it is not a linear relationship. It's not like, oh, the more development, uh, the less, the lower the number of migrants. It's rather that we see that from low to middle income, emigration actually increases. And that is the yeah. paradox. Only when countries shift into that higher income category, we see that rates of out-migration go down. And this is actually what's been happening Recently in countries like Turkey and Mexico, where we really see that those countries have transformed into destination countries and less and less Mexicans and Turks see a future in migrating that is a result of increasing incomes, increasing employment, but also demographic change, birth rates have gone down rapidly in all those countries. So there's less and less young people that are actually that willing to migrate. And those countries, interestingly enough, seem to be becoming destinations in their own right.
0: Yeah. So, but on a basic, not not, not linear, as you say, but on yeah. as a basic assumption, less poverty, more migration. <laughs> it's fascinating, but it's, I mean, when you explain it, it's, it's logical and it makes sense and you can understand it. But then you hear politicians in Europe talk about these rickety boats on the Mediterranean and, and the, the causes for migration and they only talk about poverty and conflict. And we have to give them more aid. We have to invest in all these uh, security systems that makes them more secure and that we c- c- quash the uh, the terrorist uh, bands that 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 uh, plague them down there and then we will solve the problem but it is actually p- completely false uh, but so the question is do politicians in Europe and the United States know about the mechanisms that you are talking about that are so th- the other way around <laughs> than what you hear in the media or do they not do they know and and and, and um, choose not to talk about it because it's not in line with their their policy or their politics or their their uh, i don't know their lip service or yeah do I they th- simply not know
1: uh, I think they know certainly top politicians know and i think uh, we see two uh, narratives dominating um the politics of migration. The one is the uh, I call it the mass immigration fearmongering narrative. So whenever there is an increase in uh, cross-border uh, migration, we see politicians claiming that this is the new waves to come, and we can expect hundreds of millions of Africans to come to Europe. And it creates this whole climate of you know this is the. De- just a trickle for the waves to come. The other one is of course the classic allegation towards immigrants that they take away jobs, healthcare, public housing and so on and so forth. And that's sort of certainly in Northwestern Europe and also in the UK leads to a narrative about immigration is undermining the welfare state. I think these are perfect uh, strategies for politicians to basically create a smokescreen and take the attention away from the real causes of migration. And the real main direct cause of migration is quite simply labor demand. I mean, if you look at the history of immigration, both to the U.S. and in and, and, and Europe, it all started with recruitment of migrant workers. If you go back to the 1950s, 60s, 70s, that recruitment took place initially in Southern Europe, later in North Africa and Turkey, if we take a European perspective. But once, of course, people started migrating, networks kicked in, family members helped each other, and the migration flow sort of, Perpetuated itself, but most migrations have started with some form of recruitment. Now, these days, recruitment takes place more informally. It no longer goes through a, an agreement signed, let's say, between Germany and 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 and. Uh, and Turkey or between France and Morocco. It now is often happening through the so-called free labor market. We see all the employment agencies playing a very big role in recruiting all sorts of labor from inside and outside the European Union. So we see a very close relation between levels of economic growth, employment and immigration. So if the economy tanks, migration goes down. If the economy goes up, immigration goes up. And of course, a lot of family members follow economic migrants. So by and large, this is an economic phenomenon. And there's a huge level of hypocrisy in this. Uh, if, If you go to the United States, the level of enforcement, and what I mean with enforcement is actually the chance of an employer being controlled, whether there is a migrant worker working for that employer let's say in agriculture without having the proper permits is extremely low Uh, also if you go to the UK and many European countries actually these are fairly low risks employers take so even for undocumented migration we see there is a large willingness amongst government to turn a blind eye towards those practices. But okay. as I said, the big majority of these migrations are perfectly legal immigrations facilitated through all sorts of entry channels for both higher and lower skilled workers for which a clear need exists. And that comes to another issue is that more and more, although, you know, the official story is about we want the smart and bright and wealthy immigrants that there are a lot of sectors in Western economies where the jobs um, that need to be done, we can no longer find local workers to do these jobs. We typically talk about agriculture, about construction, cleaning, health, healthcare, healthcare, and the COVID nineteen crisis. I think make perfectly clear that a lot of this work in what we now have called the vital sectors are yeah. migrant workers, yeah. um, and these are typically the type of jobs that native workers no longer want to pick up and uh, for which only migrant workers are often um, available and that is a very important uh, cause of the continuation of immigration uh, also of lower skilled immigrants because the official narrative uh, the politicians want to tell the story that oh we want the engineers and the doctors but we know we don't need the cleaners and the fruit pickers and agriculture, <laughs> construction workers the problem is that the labor demand Uh, Is still there, and we have very complex labor markets, but also a native population that is rather unemployed and to do those type of jobs, and um, and I think that is the real that comes to the real core of the issue. If you look over the last, let's say, thirty to forty years, and of course it differs from country to country, but there has been an overall trend towards economic deregularization, which means declining power of organized labor an increasing leeway for employers to uh, hire people temporarily, a decline of labor standards and labor protection, but also an increasing skill levels of the native population. I mean, more and more people doing higher education, becoming very specialized, typically no longer available to do these jobs. And migrants typically have filled those gaps. Mm. Often lower paid jobs that have low status, but as we've seen with the COVID-19 crisis, these are indeed very vital jobs that still need to filter in the economy,
0: and also the proportion of working-age people in these rich countries in Europe and the United States. Well, not the United States as much, but in Europe is decreasing. So eventually, yeah, I mean, we, we will need to 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 fill the fill the gaps in the population.
1: Well, I, I think the best way to frame it is that we see a strong demand, and that demand is unlikely to go away in the short term. Uh, I don't think that migration is a solution to aging problems because in a way the whole world is aging, but certainly, as you said, a country that is growing fast economically and is at the same time dealing with uh, fast aging is is likely to generate very high labor demand for lower skilled workers and Mm -hmm. higher skilled workers. Now, what you need to do with this politically, I think is quite a different question. You may also choose to basically no longer subsidize certain sectors. I can think about agriculture, for instance, in some European countries? Uh, Do we still want, in a country like the Netherlands, very intensive horticulture sector that is heavily subsidized, that is very polluting? Um, These are very different uh, discussions, I think. A country like Japan, for instance, really wants to minimize immigration, but has invested massively in automation of production processes now the, and also even services. Now, these are real debates, you know, what sort of economy do you want in the future? But it is very difficult to think about migration because even Japan uh, has to confront the reality of increasing migration at much lower levels than in Europe, relatively speaking. But still, we see that all advanced countries generate this demand for migrant labor. And I think that also connects the immigration debate to much broader debates about the type of society we want to live in. And in my view, that is a real debate. Because you can talk forever about, do we want less or more immigrants? But in a way, that's not a relevant question. Um, I think it is legitimate to have a debate on how much immigrants would we ideally want to have, or type of immigrants. But if you just state these things without doing something about the fundamental causes of immigration which in my view is primarily labor demand that really drives, drives immigration in the longer term, uh, not going to change much.
0: Yeah.
1: And in that case, you see a huge discrepancy often between the official policy. And this is what you've seen in the United States in the millions is a lack of legal facilities for certain types of migrants to migrate, but the continuation of the demand for all that type of jobs and, And so we have ended up with millions of uh, predominantly Mexican undocumented workers in the US, Mm. which fill a vital economic role.
0: Mm, They keep coming. They keep coming. Although Trump is building this wall. (laughs) What do do you think about the wall? Does it it have any effect at all? If it's even built, I mean, it's not going to be built uh, 100% anyway, but still...
1: Well, of course, partly that's a hoax, eh? Because part of that wall or fence had already been built, particularly around yeah. densely populated areas. I think uh, uh, it is practically impossible to fence up the entire fence of the entire border. But the real irony is, of course, the first one is that most Mexicans, also undocumented migrants from Mexico, came in completely legally, because that's another, uh, I think, misunderstanding. That the biggest cause of undocumented migration is actually not illegal border crossings, it is what we call visa overstaying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The vast majority of Mexicans and other Latin Americans that right now have no documents, so undocumented migrants in the U.S. came in actually legally, but stayed longer than their visas permitted them. That's Mm -hmm. the same for Europe. So let's say you are a Moroccan. Young man or woman, and you want to go to Europe, but you don't have the papers, you rather apply for a tourist visa. That's a much safer and convenient way to migrate, and then stay longer than your permit, uh, or, or a work a temporary work permit, it's possible too, or a student visa. And if you want to stay longer, you just overstay your permit. So a wall is not going to stop that because many people actually cross those borders by plane, even undocumented migrants. The second irony is that uh, maximum migration has already. Uh, decreased to a trickle over recent over the recent decade, which, yeah. uh, according to most U.S. and Mexican migration researcher, actually reflects improving economic conditions in Mexico. Mm. And
0: yeah, the most of the, the people coming are, are, as far as I understand, from Honduras and uh, Guatemala, yeah. El Salvador. So
1: far, Central American, and, and the overall sort of uh, rate of border crossings has already gone down, even before Trump started talking about the wall. So this, I think, shows another thing that, Uh, And it relates to something I've said already before. Uh, Douglas Massey, uh, I think the most prominent migration uh, researcher alive, who's done a lot of research, particularly on Mexican US migration, actually stated that uh, the permanent settlement of large undocumented migrant populations has been the result of those policies. Because what they did is transforming a circular movement into a permanent settlement. And you can transpose that to the European situation. So what he tried to argue is that when borders were relatively open and easy to cross, and when you could relatively easily get a visa, people wouldn't bother to stay.
0: And I've seen the same
1: in Morocco. This is
0: called circular migration, isn't it? Yeah, th- there's a t- yeah. So uh, f- this is really fascinating. Uh, yeah, s- sorry. <laughs> no, no, worries. No no,
1: no, no. I mean, it it is it is very intuitive. I, it, imagine you live in northern Morocco in the Rift Mountains or a city like Tangiers, and you can literally see Spain on the other side of the border. Now, Andalusia, the southern part of Spain and northern Morocco, had very long, close historical relations, um, and it was completely normal. Uh, I think for the generation of 50 years and older, if you speak to these people in Morocco, they remember when they were young, particularly people with some level of education, they would just spend their summer holidays in Spain, uh, or sometimes a bit longer. And they may, when it was half a season anyway, they would just work a little bit. Like there's some Europeans who go to Australia to do similar things there to yes, pick grapes yes, or yes. something like that. So for many young Moroccans, it was completely normal to spend a few weeks or months. So just check it out. Like young people who were eager to know about other countries, like many young people are, or may even take gap years these days, many young Moroccans want to check out what life was in Spain. And indeed with the Spanish economy improving over the 1980s, more and more Moroccans started to move to Spain to indeed work in agriculture, in particular construction, because the Spanish no longer wants to do these jobs anymore. Most Moroccans wouldn't bother staying. They may have stayed for a few months or years and then returned to Morocco because it is not far away, life is cheaper, and many Moroccans just went to Spain for the experience, but also to earn some money, for Mm. instance, build a house back home, start a small enterprise, finance a wedding, things like that. But once Spain introduced visa requirements as part of the Schengen Agreement in 1991, permanent settlements of Moroccans started in Spain. Okay. because before 1991 smugglers had no business no. after 1991 when moroccans needed a visa to get into spain and that became increasingly difficult imagine you pay more and more money you take more and more risk to cross that border your willingness to return is much lower and that is what douglas massey showed for mexico but at the same also on the European side, we saw the permanent settlement of one million Moroccans in a few decades in the country like Spain. Basically, the visa requirement locked them up on the other side of the border. Yeah. Because people were afraid to return out of fear they couldn't remigrate again, let's say the next season when they wanted to work. So what restrictions typically do is interrupt a circular movement and make it more permanent. And that shows the huge dilemma for governments, because on the one hand, yes, it is understandable that governments want to have some control over migration. But the irony is often once governments started to introduce ill-conceived type of migration restrictions, it may actually backfire and you may actually end up with more permanent immigrants. Uh, than you had intended to do because it may create an incentive for migrants to either migrate before it's too late or indeed not to return and that is what yeah. happened in several instances. So and to go back to Douglas the um, American migration researcher, here's his famous line as a migration politics is often about creating the impression of being in control. Mm mm-hmm. Immigration primarily immigration politics is primarily about creating the impression of being in control. Yeah. And of course, all politicians, there is no politician that d- does not want to be seen in control. And migration is, of course, partly a phenomenon that is autonomous in the sense of if there is labor demand, migrants are going to show up one way or another, mm-hmm. either legally or illegally. Often migrants go there where the demand is
0: but you positive. think that politicians know this that these um, they even know about these circular circular migration mechanisms so that they would i mean if they were not hypocrites if they were truly honest when they spoke about these things they would say things like if we had more open borders and less harsh visa regulations migration would be less dramatic are there uh, any politicians that would would be able to say such a thing
1: we see some politicians saying that uh, sort of liberal or libertarian politicians sometimes say that i mean the meaning of liberal differs a bit from country to country so let me not go into that exactly but of course that is seen as political suicide by most politicians to say things like that and i should say it is a dilemma in a contemporary world because if one country would do that alone then of course many migrants will find a way to the particular country where those borders Uh, controls are being opened and it's almost a collective action uh, issue so, and we saw that a bit, little bit with uh, the free mobility within the European Union, with the accession of many Central and Eastern European countries, that the UK was one of the few countries that opened its borders immediately, whether a lot of other European countries had sort yeah. of transition agreements, where the mobility yeah. was a bit more restricted. Uh, I should say at the same time, the British economy was booming. So there were many other factors playing a role, but it partly explained why a lot of Eastern and Central Europeans found a way to the. Yeah. united. Um, kingdom but now so, they've gone
0: back to a large extent to Poland I think
1: well that's another issue we see of course that yeah. Poland and, and that is the typical phenomenon of free mobility uh, freely mobile people tend to go back as soon as situation uh, yeah. deteriorates we also saw that in the 2008 economic crisis in Spain Spain has become one of the most important destination countries of migrants in the European Union that Romanians and Moroccans and Ecuadorians are amongst the biggest immigrant groups in Spain. When the global economic crisis hits Spain particularly hard, leading to mass unemployment in, in construction and agriculture, um, actually most Moroccans and Ecuadorians did not go back. But Romanians went back in big numbers yeah. because they had because they,
0: they they were they were able to freely go back. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we see that uh unconstrained free migration that's the same for migration within countries obviously reacts very neatly to uh, business cycles labor demands so people come when there is a demand people go back it's very circulatory yeah. non-free mobility and that is the real dilemmas for governments on the one hand there's this political will to you know control mobility but we also see that uh, once you put obstacles in the way the, the migrants that are in are not uh, they have no appetite to go back anymore because they fear not having the opportunity to to re yeah. again when circumstances- they see
0: it as a one-off opportunity
1: yeah so i once had this uh, i was in a taxi in morocco and um, in one of these big taxis that commutes between cities um, and and 10 percent of moroccans live abroad so it's very easy to find somebody who's lived abroad and i got talking to the taxi driver and um, he was asking what I was doing. So I was explaining to him, I'm doing research on migration. Oh, that's interesting. And he showed me his Italian permanent residence permit. And you mm. know what he told me? As soon as I got this, I went back home. <laughs> and for me, it speaks <laughs> to a, a larger paradox because yeah, yeah. he stayed in Italy as long as
0: was needed to get his permanent... Yeah, and now he has this insurance, so to speak. It's a, like a an life insurance. insurance.
1: Yeah, yeah, he can fall back onto. So what he did was go back every year for a few months. Uh, to work and to, make some money. He knew one particular farmer during half a season, he would go back to earn some extra money to, to basically earn some money for his taxi company.
0: Maybe at the, at the core, at the basic core of this issue is uh, the question of how m- the majority of people actually act when they, when, uh, they are free to act as they, as they like, as they want. And this goes for many um, things, many issues. We had, for instance, a parallel. There are lots of parallels, but one is the parallel that here in Sweden, we when, when Sweden joined the European Union in the 90s, we had very strict alcohol rules. So there were nice. lots of experts and a lot of debates about how much alcohol the Swedes were going to start drinking once we joined because eventually we would have to scrap the very strict rules on how much liquor you could uh, bring back home from, from a trip abroad. I think you were allowed to take, to uh, privately import maybe one or two liters of, of liquor. And then after a few years, um, that limit was raised to, you know, uh, more than you can carry, actually. So there were so many experts who were really, really worried that, oh, the Swedes are going to drink so much booze, they're mm-hmm. going to get drunk every day. But of course, that didn't happen because people don't want to be drunk every day. They want to live their lives and and work. And so once these regulations were scrapped, people just, uh, it it increased a little bit in in the beginning. The first years, the alcohol consumption rose a little bit and then it actually went down again. And now it is stabilized. You have actually
1: done research on this. I mean, we we have, first of all, the more general point, I think you raise is very valid. I think... First of all, we need to define in a way migration or human mobility, as I often refer to it differently. Because mobility, migration, you should, I think, consider it as a freedom in its own right. And it doesn't really matter whether you use it or not. I often make the parallel to political rights. Many people in democracies don't bother to vote. And even many more people never bother to run for office to become a parliamentarian or something mm-hmm. like that. It is just a very awareness of those freedoms yeah, and those abilities to act, your awareness that you can speak up if you're unhappy about something without being punished, your ability, if you would like to, to run for office, to, you know, participate in politics is a freedom in itself, whether you use it or not. Now, the most common experience I think a lot of Europeans don't realize is that we have such a huge, if you carry an EU passport, you have such liberties in terms of moving not just within the European Union, but almost anywhere in the world. And that is an asset that is um, increasing your well being without w- whether you use it or not. And I think you become aware of that once you go to countries where people don't have those liberties. Many young Moroccans have described their country to me as an open prison. They say, because, well, when I was like younger and I went to Morocco, so it's such a beautiful country. And they say, but well, we can't really enjoy it because you can just move out of your country and come back to your country out of free will. But we don't even have the option to move out of here. So it can create a sort of obsession with moving out. I described mm-hmm. a very different mentality of older and younger Moroccans. The older Moroccans it was completely normal to just cross to Spain. And this was something completely normal. And nobody bothered, in a way, settling in Spain. Because well, why would you do so? Mm. because life is good in Morocco and it's cheaper and the family is there so you may go there to work for a few months but then you actually go back yeah you see interesting paradoxes that um, uh, indeed like you said uh, when uh, we have done quantitative research we used all the data we could find about what happened after European Union was indeed enlarged you know you talked about earlier on of course Scandinavian countries, like Sweden, and, but also elsewhere in Europe, like Austria joined the European Union, but later Central and Eastern Europe joined, and there was this fear of a mass immigration. Yeah. And what actually happened was a temporary increase, probably for a few years. These were probably almost like a release of people who've been waiting for a long time. But as soon as confidence kicked in that free mobility would be there in the future, actually mobility um, level went uh, down, yeah much lower levels. And you see the same in, 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 uh, in a different context, uh, often the, the case of Jamaica for instance and other so-called West Indies in the Caribbean, former British colonies, you saw a huge wave of migration to the UK before the UK changed its immigration law that uh, did no longer allow Commonwealth citizens to move freely to the UK when Suriname, which is a former Dutch colony in South America, became independent from the Netherlands in 1975, 40% of its total population moved to the Netherlands because they were afraid they were no longer able to migrate in the future. And these are just a few examples of, I would say, ill-conceived immigration policies or knee-jerk reactions to fears that often can result in the complete opposite.
0: Psychologically reversed, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and and I think that is really for me making the case for uh, taking migration science more seriously, and thinking more critically about what policies could work and what policies. Definitely, work.
0: definitely, there is so much they should actually be more open about uh, to the public also because of yeah. the opinions that are rising. Uh, there are so many more things to talk about. I I'm not going to delve too deep into every detail here, but because I want to also. Uh, ask you about climate refugees you you mentioned uh, you touched upon it earlier but that's really um, a very topical issue of course there's a lot of talk about climate refugees and uh, that that category is also increasing of course that's what you hear all the time in the media Uh, i have a pretty different picture but um, yeah let's hear you uh, talk a little bit about the climate refugees and if that's even a thing
1: well, I recently uh, on my, I have a blog and my most recent blog is entitled Climate Refugees, the Fabrication of a Migration Threat. So, in, in my opinion, um, climate change is one of the most pressing issues, if not the most pressing issues, uh, fa- uh, humanity is facing uh, right now. So let me make very clear, be very clear about it because the last thing I want is that my argument is going to be abused by people who are in the business of denying climate change, I think. But uh, the, what I find dangerous is that this issue of climate change is now being linked more and more to the issue of uh, mass migration so hey we we see an increasing linkage of this idea that climate change will lead to impoverishment will lead to livelihood insecurity will drive more and more people poor people out of poor countries to western countries it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of a range of uh, evidence we have first of all uh, we know of course and i briefly mentioned it before that for instance if uh, climate change will lead to an agrarian crisis in particular poor countries let's say in some sub-saharan african countries that for most people who will have less income who whose harvest may increasingly fail those people will be the last people who will have the means to actually move in the first place and actually the biggest victims of any form of crisis i would say and certainly also of environmental havoc are those people who are being trapped in the places they stay. These are not the people who may go on the move. And we also know from a lot of research on disasters is that people who are forced to move, for instance, because of flooding or hurricanes or other uh, environmental crisis situations, move over short distances and tend to return to their place of origin as soon as possible. That doesn't diminish the potential negative impact of climate change for the livelihoods of hundreds of millions of poor people around the world, particularly people who are dependent on the environment in terms of their livelihoods, think about people into fishing and agriculture. They, of course, are the most vulnerable populations, but these are also the least likely populations to make that move over borders, let alone uh, to make that move, let's say, to Europe. And that's what we see a lot, this issue linkage. And I think that is very unfortunate that also some climate activists who are in there, I'm sure with good intentions, use the mass migration argument, which is not uh, scientific. I would say it's intellectually dishonest because there's a lot of research on this issue now, but unfortunately can play into those same irrational mass immigration fears that are right now played out in the open by the uh, extreme right uh, in Mm. many uh, countries. Mm. And I think that is a very dangerous uh, exercise I've done myself a lot of research. I mean, my original research was on agrarian change um, in the oasis of of North Africa. So I did a lot of research on issues around land and water scarcity and the linkages to migration. And I couldn't actually find any direct link at all, exactly because the most vulnerable populations are those who are likely not to be able to move. One example is perhaps quite telling that when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans over a decade ago, most people who died in that crisis were indeed those people without the means to move, without cars, without connections out of the city, predominantly African-American populations that were at biggest risk of actually dying on the spot. So um, I think it is very tricky to link those issues. And I think Mm. climate refugees can also be a very politically convenient a theme mm. for many uh, politicians to use.
0: To my knowledge, uh, the number of people who are forced to move because of uh, weather extremes should be lower today because we have, I mean, people are less poor and uh, there yeah. is better protection and uh, yeah. people, I mean, if you look at the statistic of how many people die from uh, weather extremes, yeah. it's gone down precipitously uh, for yeah, the yeah. last uh, century. I mean, uh, People died in the millions, millions in China in floodings uh, during the 30s and 20s, and they don't do that anymore. <laughs> so, well, I, I
1: agree. I agree with you. I mean, if a hurricane, the same hurricane hits uh, Haiti first and then moves to the United States, of course, the death toll and the other damage is much, much yeah. lower in the United States than Haiti, and it it points to the the the, the most important issue and. I mean, we don't have time to fully go into this, but a lot of research has been done on this, is that the key thing is increasing so-called resilience. Indeed, if people are less poor and their houses are stronger um, um, and, and they have more adaptive strategies and they're not completely dependent on uh, on, uh, on subsistence agriculture, people are much better to, better able to deal with it. But let me sum it up. I mean, it's basically five main reasons to be very skeptical on this idea that climate change will lead to mass migration. First of all, I think it is very important that climate change is an extremely serious issue, but it's also a so-called slow onset phenomenon, which means, for instance, rising sea levels, people living in coastal areas, gives them time to adapt. And another thing is that most increased incidents of floodings in coastal areas is rather the result of land subsidence, which is often related to Uh, increased pumping of water rather than sea level rise as such. So there's also a very tricky issue going on here. The second, of course, and you mentioned it already, people can use various adaptation strategies, such as building flood defences. My own country, the Netherlands, has a history of the common struggle against the encroachment of the sea by building dikes and polders and so on. So there are a lot of adaptive strategies possible and making people more resilient to deal with environmental stress is probably a much more effective way, instead of of creating those apocalyptic scenarios. And the third reason, I already mentioned it, is that existing studies on sort of all sorts of environmental events, like extreme weather events, show that the vast majority of people move over short distances, not only because they have the lack, to, lack of means to move over larger distances, because most people simply want to stay close to home. As we already said, the vast majority of people is not an international migrant and probably doesn't even want to be an international migrant. And the fourth reason is that such displacement tend to be temporary because indeed people want to wish to return home as soon as possible. And there's an interesting paradox because what have we seen is that human people around the world have increasingly tended to settle in coastal areas. and in river valleys. Why? Because soils are fertile there. And that's typically why farmers want to live in those places. These are typically also the places that are most prone to flooding. Very fertile areas located in river valleys and deltas are often very heavily populated. And often big cities are located there as well right now. And of course those areas are almost by default more vulnerable to extreme uh, weather events right. for instance, and, and flooding but it means that we need to build resilience and we need to create adaptive strategies so that people can cope with it. And the fifth and I think very important uh, insight but it comes from the earlier arguments we talked about is that most people living in poor countries of the world would not have the resources to move over larger distances. So some things I've sometimes seen is that we talked about this phenomenon of boat migration from uh, from Africa to Europe, and that was soft, sometimes linked to climate change. I think that is a link you can simply not make, and it is very misleading.
0: It's so, a bit ridiculous when you know that when you know the driving forces, and you you read about those things. Exactly, but that is
1: a very popular sort of mythology that we see uh, recycled in a lot of uh, media and, and political narratives, and I think that is where the danger is because. I understand almost the temptation of people wanting to raise awareness about uh, the dangers of of climate change and the whole idea that climate systems are so complex. that I think the most fundamental argument is we shouldn't even take the risk that things could get out of control even if we don't know exactly what will happen with an X or Y temperature increase in so and so many decades. I think that's a very sad argument to indeed uh, reduce drastically Uh, carbon emissions but to link this to migration I understand the temptation because in a way it it, it may add in the view of um, organizations uh, arguing in favor of urgent action on climate change it may add to the urgency of the issue but I think unwittingly it may actually play into um, unfounded fears of mass immigration so I think it is in the end going to backfire Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and sometimes people have said to me you shouldn't say this in the public or you should also not say that development leads to more migration but then I always say well I think we need to be able to deal with the truth and I do believe that the public is ready for real insights and we should not as uh, scientists play political games and unfortunately also uh, some people pushing this argument use the mass migration argument for, I think, wrong reasons. We also see that on the left uh, wings, both, I think both left and right wing politicians sometimes use these type of arguments about mass migration. I mean, we see it on the right wing, this specter of mass immigration and it's only going to increase in the future is often being used to create a threat sort of narrative and to make a case for uh, even more stringent border controls and so on and so forth. On the left it's often used as an argument to say, oh, we need to uh, do more development collaboration. We need to help poor countries to develop. Um, And both arguments are, empirically false and not sustained by research, as we know. But I think what they have in common, is they play into the same idea. So in many ways, both on the left and right wing sides of the political divide, we see often that this idea of an impending migration crisis mm. is sustained. And that's what they have in common. And it reinforces this image of we are living in an age of a migration crisis. And that's where we come back to the original issue. As soon yeah. as you see a spike, it feeds into this idea of, ooh, we have a huge migration crisis. Yeah.
0: Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Very wisely put there, many of those things that you said. So finally, having said all these things and told us all these truths that many don't know about, Uh, how should Europe and the United States handle migration in the years to come? Can you give our leaders some good advice?
1: Well, I think the biggest advice, I I think it's a myth that uh, immigration is running out of hand or that our immigration systems are broken. I've studied for many years now the evolution of migration policies in countries around the world. I think countries have become better and better at uh, managing immigration. Uh, We only see that with two categories of immigrants, we talk about asylum seekers and lower skilled workers. They have been the target of uh, migrant scapegoating, uh, very tempting for politicians to put the blame on actually quite vulnerable and relatively small categories of immigrants, to create this um, myth uh, of uh, this migration threat. And I think what I the piece of advice I would give to politicians is not to fend the fame of xenophobia, but start to start a real debate about immigration, linked to much broader questions about what type of society do we want to live in. I once spoke to a us immigration uh, economists who in a moment of private frankness said to me, I'm not sure whether it's a good idea to live in a country in the future where all our work is being outsourced, where we no longer tend our own gardens, where we no longer look after our own children, where we no longer iron our own clothes and where where our houses are cleaned by domestic workers we hire. Do we really want to live in such a society? John Maynard Keynes, I think, back in the 1940s or 30s, he, pre- he predicted that we would head towards five-hour workdays or even shorter. Forgive me, uh, ignorance of the details. Of course, you can have very long debates about the type of society you want to live in. And I often say many of these discussions go back to economic policies, and in particular, labor market policies. So to have a real debate about migration in the European context is, for instance, to have a real debate about the future of the welfare state, or the future of work? How do we divide work within families? Who takes care of our children? Who takes care of our elderly? Who takes care of our sick? I think these are real debates. To what extent do we want to further liberalize labor markets or do we want to partly go back to higher degrees of labor protection? Do we want to maximize economic growth Or do we want slower growth and more redistribution? These are all much more fundamental debates that have a huge impact on immigration. And I think the biggest paradox, and I think this is the truth that politicians need to face, is that there has been this big trend towards economic liberalization, less oversight of governments over what happens in labor markets. Now, this may be less the case, let's say in the Netherlands and Scandinavia as compared to the UK or the US, but that's been the overall policy trend. Now, and this has created much more leeway for immigration because you see much more temporary recruitment agencies being in the business of recruiting migrants to work across borders. Now, whatever you want to do with immigration, you have to have the debate in relation to much broader debate about the type of society you want to live in. Now, if you indeed continue on that road of societies where uh, a lot of labor is being outsourced, that labour will most probably going to be picked up by migrants. Um, I think healthcare of a uh, childcare is a very good example. I think, for instance, if you compare childcare and elderly care, I think it's a very clear case if you look within Europe. If you go to a country like Sweden or the Netherlands, we see that we have. Uh, public facilities for child and elderly care that are largely subsidized by governments, that are open and accessible for most people, that are subsidized. If you go to the UK or you go to Southern Europe, those facilities are largely lacking. And so what you typically see in Southern Europe is that care work, not only for children, but also elderly, is often picked up by immigrant workers. And the same in the UK. Au pairs, or indeed domestic workers that migrate to the UK in order to take care of children, for instance. And so that the, is-
0: the, demand, the demand is there, no doubt about yeah.
1: it. You have to connect debates about the economy, the type of yeah. society you want to live in, to mm. types of immigration. And this is not a pro rental migration argument, it's a real immigration debate mm. about the type of society you want to live in. Now, presuming that we wish to continue to live in a reasonably open, perhaps slightly more regularised or less deregularized economy, it is very difficult to conceive of a future where there will be not a demand for all sorts of immigrant labour. And I think that reality has to be faced by governments. A politic of denial actually makes things often worse. And that's what we typically see with the so-called guest workers in Europe, With the undocumented Mexican migrant populations. These are good examples but also asylum seekers whose existence politicians often want to deny but 10-20 years down the line they have to come to term with the reality that those people are not going away. But in a way the damage has already been done because those populations have been told they're only there temporarily, they haven't been given access to education and employment, hence you create in a way a situation of and what we often see as an integration problem, which in a way reflects the lack of willingness of politicians to face a reality. Because I remember in the Netherlands that uh, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, numbers of Turks and Moroccan immigrants started to increase. More and more families uh, were reunified. but governments were still in denial. The Netherlands was still standing on the line like Germany at the time, but we are not an immigration country. And they even offered all sorts of reintegration courses, language courses to the children of immigrants to prepare them to return to the mother country. Of course, no big surprise if you tell an immigrant population that they're there not to stay, but to return. The same as happens to many refugee populations that you create a certain set of expectations um, Mm -hmm. that are not very favorable to successful incorporation destination Mm societies. So I think it is really to come to terms with realities And that politicians should not fend the flames of xenophobia, which unfortunately you see happening quite a lot, both on the left and the right side, I must say. And secondly, to have a real debate and and sort of gather the courage to be honest uh, with your own population, with your own constituencies, that migration is there to stay to a certain extent, and that you better build migration policies that have a certain relation to economic and social realities, rather than deny those realities, because denying them generally makes the problem worse, instead of solving any issues. So I see a lot of political uh, positioning around migration that uh, is aiming to identify the problem but doesn't provide any sensible solutions and often tries to think the phenomenon simply away.
0: Hi, the Haas, thank you so much for all these fascinating insights and thank you so much for being a guest on the show. You're welcome, thank you.